Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for how to fix them. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari, associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Well, hey guys, how's everybody doing? It's been a turbulent week of politics and, and a lot of stuff to talk about, but uh, how, how are you all doing? tired, <laughs> uh, ready to talk about today's topic. But you know, it's been a it's been a tiring week as we're we're recording this on July the 8th. And um, it's been a tough week for the Coronavirus. And that's just kind of where we're at. Lee, how are you? How are you doing? You have a, a, a breath of fresh air, some optimism to, to well, bring us into this uh, Wednesday morning? You know, I, I, I'm always a, a turbulent mix of, of depression and optimism uh yeah i was you're like a goose or a duck on the water you know it looks very calm and, and tranquil above but below the feet are just paddling furiously i still gotta hold out hope that that something better is around the horizon otherwise you know i might as well you know move to the canadian mountains and you know start growing turnips well, that's that's exactly what we're talking about today. What is on the horizon? What does the future hold? What does our crystal ball tell us? And it's a really important question to ask because I think we're in an era of political transformation and political change. I think that right now, no one really has a claim on uh, what we're going to be talking about for the next generation. Neither party seems to have a um, to be coming out of this period right now with a lock on it. Um, you know, if you're standing in the late 1920s looking ahead to a New Deal coalition, I don't think you can say the same thing uh, right now about any other future coalitions. But again, maybe I'm wrong. And, uh, and I think we're going to talk about today, while the, there's still a lot of presidential election um, left to go here, um, Trump, uh, President Trump is trailing in the polls in, in both state battleground polls and national polls um, against this challenger, Joe Biden. And, and while conceding that the election is not yet, has not yet happened, and there is not a final outcome. And by being and conceding that that final outcome may be that uh, President Trump does win re-election. After all, 2016 was a very uh, big surprise on, on that front for a lot of people who paid attention to the polls only. Um, we're going to kind of assume a, a different outcome and we're going to consider what kinds of things that we might expect from a Biden presidency if Biden does, in fact, win in November. And, and we're going to think about the state of the Democratic Party as a, as a coalition, and we're going to think about um, what kinds of things it might do. And we're going we're gonna to help structure that thinking by looking at some major theories of political transformation that have been developed and articulated over the years that I think are, are quite helpful. But, but let's start with our priors here. I mean, what do we think we might expect from a possible Biden presidency? Do do you uh, see major transformation on the horizon? And Lee, let's start with you. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm kind of of two minds here. On the one hand, I, I see a lot of gathering forces uh, suggesting that we are in a moment of transformation. I think transformation almost always follows crisis. And I think this definitely counts as a moment of crisis. I think transformation follows moments in which an old way of thinking and an old status quo is thoroughly repudiated. And I think this moment clearly qualifies as one of those moments. But on the other hand, we have this super intense hyperpartisanship. Uh, and 
you know, our, our political institutions really require broad compromise or something sort of like super majorities to, to really make those political transformations. And, you know, I don't see that happening. I mean, at most, the Democrats maybe get 51, 52 Senate seats. Do they uh, do they then get rid of the filibuster? Uh, the you know the, the courts are, are going to I think be a tremendous obstacle for progressive legislation if Democrats try to go big. You know, I think really the the most likely place where we'll see transformation is not in Washington but in the states. I think particularly in some of the some of the blue states. Uh, and you know I, th- I think we'll see emerging social movements. I'm not sure if, if the Biden presidency will be transformative, but I, I really do think that whoever the next president is will be a, a truly transformative president. And the, the Biden years will sort of be the transition years to that, I think. Julia? So I think that the the country's in a politically transformative mood. I don't have, I mean, like Lee, I have kind of a, a mixed sense of how immediate this transformation will be. I think it can be difficult to exactly tell. And if you think back to past political transformations, like the New Deal era, that really, that took a long time. That unfolded in over many years with a lot of political back and forth. Um, But the way that we, the way that people are thinking and talking right now, not just about changing policies, but also the way we do politics and coming, you know, coming off of this week in which um, there's been a Supreme Court decision that basically maintains a status quo and allows states, for example, to um, keep... My cat has joined the podcast. Everyone, hello. Um, the <laughs> allows states to continue to punish faithless electors. It's Although it maintains a status quo, I think has really spurred a lot of conversation about the real purpose and function of the Electoral College is just one example of, of institutional change. Um, I also think this has very little to do with Biden himself and a lot to do with the transformation and organizing energy and coalitional shifts in the Democratic Party. And I started to really think about the potential for transformation about a month ago during the the height of the Black Lives Matter protests because it seems to have grown into such a, a powerful and also comprehensive social movement with such a a broad agenda and has captured media attention and succeeded in many ways in public opinion. And as I started to think about how that might be a transformative force within the democratic party in a way that's not really, it's not really related to what kind of person is um, likely to be the next democratic president. I think those are both very um, spot on assessments, and I and I share your um, uncertainty and um, about the future. But I think that, and I also agree that that Biden is. It's not necessarily all about Biden, nor is it all about Trump. But I do think that that thinking through the presidency is a way to help make sense of American politics more generally and all the different moving uh, parts of American politics. And and I. And while we're going to be talking about Biden today and a Biden presidency as a kind of way to make sense of what's happening in American politics, I do think that we also have to grapple with Trump and what kind of presidency um, or what kind of president Trump is, because that is, I think we're going to discuss in a minute, helps to inform our understanding of, of, of the presidency of uh, Joe Biden. And then lastly, I think we need to think about 
We are in a transformative period, but in trying to assess what happens out of this period, I think it really is important to stress the change in how we think about politics. And I've emphasized this time and again on, on this podcast, but we do have more people participating in politics. We have uh, grassroots movements like Black Lives Matter and others. We have the Tea Party movement before. Um, but it seems that politics is still dysfunctional and, and nothing. We haven't seen kind of major transformative change, despite the fact that Trump campaigned on that uh, to a certain respect. Uh, Obama did as well, um, it, because I think the, the places where we participate in politics um, has shifted to the courts and to the administration. And, and that is going to put a ceiling on the kind the, the extent or the or the or the size of the change that we see. Because ultimately it takes Congress or it takes the people acting in the in the state legislatures or out in the hinterlands uh, through um, advocacy and activism to ultimately legitimize major transformative change. And we're not yet seeing that, although we are starting to see an uptick in, in activism. Uh, we're not seeing that um, transform itself into a congressional change. And I think until that happens, we're going to be stuck in this kind of, uh, you know, no man's land. We're not entirely happy with the status quo. Uh, what came before it has been rejected, but yet we can't legitimize what comes next. And so I think that's a, a, a key uh, explanatory variable uh, for today's politics. But with that being said, um, you know, I want to go a little bit deeper here and what do we mean by transformative politics? And Julia, you just had a, a fabulous uh, piece in, on the Mischiefs of Faction blog that I think walks through this very, very well. And I'm going to be assigning this in any class that I teach in the future um, that, that tackles this issue. But do you want to share with our listeners some, uh, some of the key points of that piece and, and how we should think about transformative uh, or transformational politics? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Um, thanks so much. That's very kind. And I also want to echo something you just said, James, which is that this, this idea that you just raised about how people are unhappy with the status quo, but nothing has sort of come in to replace it yet. And I think that's a really key and important point. And that's where I think social movement energy and reframing certain kinds of debates and having messages that people get behind actually is a big part of that. So let me see if I can, if I can flesh that out by talking a little bit about my piece. So this piece um, on the mistress of faction that I wrote, it's uh, titled, What Would a Biden Era Be Like? Recent Protests Give Us Some Ideas, is built on a prominent theory of the presidency that was uh, written by one of my dissertation advisors, Stephen Skoranek at Yale. And he has this kind of, it's kind of a cyclical theory of political times, this idea that in addition to just time just moving forward like we would normally think about it that actually there are these there are these patterns in presidential politics that allow us to draw parallels across presidencies that otherwise seem very different um and that you have you have a pattern with the presidents who typically are kind of iconic often on the list of great presidents so this is your Jefferson of the deeply problematic Andrew Jackson um Abraham Lincoln, FDR, and then most recently, and somewhat in a complicated fashion, Ronald Reagan. These presidents, what they actually have in common, he argues, is not that they're superior, they have superior political skill to some of the other presidents, that all of those, all everyone who wins the presidency is a, is a successful politician, and when you start looking at their records, they often have a, you know, a lot of legislative success, many of them have... Um, 
very successful political careers before they become president. So it's not that these that this group is is superior in that regard. It's that they come into office at a time where when what was going on before, what he calls the old order, we can kind of think of it as um, the dominant party and power has started to fall apart. And so it's an opportunity to break away from that. And you can reject that without a lot of negative political consequences, relatively speaking, because that old order has fallen apart. And the other part of that is that you can you can not only break away from some of those ideas and institutions, but also start to build something new and reset. What I think is really important is reset the terms of debate. So one example that, that I would um, that I'd offer here is the way to speak about the recent era, the one I think we're basically still in, the Reagan era, is that Ronald Reagan not only is this kind of iconic figure that Republicans talk about all the time, but the kinds of ideas that Reagan talked about in the 1980s about shrinking the size of government, emphasizing private industry and individualism, you don't just see that rhetoric over the last 40 years among Republicans, you also see it among Democrats, right? That that sort of rhetoric has shaped politics in a pretty comprehensive way. That those ideas, that is a sort of starting point and that even people who are not, who are not political affiliates of Reagan or even fans of Reagan often accept those terms as the, as the starting point. So there's, there's a lot of ins and outs of the, the theory that um, we don't have to necessarily get into on the podcast, but essentially it unfolds. So you get these kinds of iconic presidents, you get the presidents that come after them and kind of try to carry on their legacies. They face a whole other set of, of problems trying to forge their own individual political identities. You get presidents who come in who were who are opposed to the existing order, the opposition party presidents. So in this case, we have people like Richard Nixon during what's still essentially a New Deal era. We have Bill Clinton coming in as a as a third way Democrat during the Reagan era. And then you have the presidents at the end. You have the presidents at the end. And that's where there were I was certainly not the only person to jump on this. Um, a variety of other scholars, and we could put some of this in the show notes, jumped on this idea as Trump was winning the nomination, that this was going to look like what Skoranek calls a disjunctive presidency, disjunctive politics, where you have the president who is the end of the era. They can't make the coalition work. They can't make the core values of the party work with what's going on in the country. And they have these failed presidencies. So this is like the presidents, um, Pierce and Buchanan leading into the Civil War. This is a, a very severe example. Herbert Hoover, Jimmy Carter. And this is, so this, again, this was a really popular set of ideas when Trump was nominated and elected. And a lot of scholars in this American political development tradition were writing about it. And then it's kind of like bubbled back up in the during the pandemic um, of the particularly this sort of Hoover comparisons about how this president deals with crisis. But in my piece, what I wanted to do, so I've essentially told you what my piece doesn't say. Um, This is the theoretical background. Um, In my piece, I started asking, okay, what does it, if if Trump is disjunctive, then what is this next, what Skoranek calls reconstructive president? What does that look like with Biden? And people have commented like Biden doesn't fit there doesn't fit their image of, of a transformational leader, right? He's been in in Congress for 
three decades. He's vice president for eight years. He is affiliated. He's as, as affiliated as you could possibly be, right, with the, the existing political structure. He's older. He's certainly not in any way considered to be on the cutting edge of the Democratic Party, ideologically, demographically, again, in terms of his career. So, you know, so the, then the question becomes, is transformation possible under those conditions? And I argue, absolutely, we're overemphasizing the president. And instead, we should really be thinking about the broader dynamics of of the coalition. So I identify a few ways in which I, I see the goals of a Democratic Party that's energized around the politics of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is a movement that not only is about... It's not only about defunding the police and about police violence, right? It's also a movement that has a very comprehensive set of goals around inequality and social support and a lot of things that are basically in line with um, with the priorities of the democratic agenda. So that's the that's the background for my piece. I'll stop monologuing now for briefly, but then I do want to go through a couple of the arguments that I make. No, absolutely. And uh, before we get there, though, Lee, what do you what's what's your take on these theories and how do they relate to how we can help make sense of what a Biden presidency may hold for the future in American politics? So I, I love these theories about political cycles. I'm a real sucker for them. And, and that's probably a topic for another whole podcast. Um, you know, I, I've been thinking about a few things. One is there, there are many ways in which Biden actually reminds me of FDR before he became president. Now, most people, when they assessed FDR before he became president, they thought, you know, he's an affable guy. You know, his real skill is charisma. And, you know, he doesn't really seem to have many strong convictions. Uh, he's just kind of where where he needs to be to get elected. You know, and I think you could say a lot of the same things about Biden. Uh, that, you know, he he is, you know, really a people person. You know, he doesn't seem to be motivated by strong convictions in any particular direction. And, you know, his presidency will probably be shaped by the people who he chooses to surround himself more than any particular vision he has. So I think there are some similarities there in that respect. Uh, you know, I, I, I like like a lot of people, I, you know, was was really drawn in by the Skoranek disjunctive presidency theory when Trump got elected and like found myself going back to to uh, you know, the, the politics that presidents make and reading the Jimmy Carter chapter really closely and noticing all these similarities about a, a candidate who was you know very at odds with his party. Uh, but you know, now that I'm. I'm and so I certainly see those similarities still. But one of the things that also thinking about Skoranek's book is this idea of, of secular time and the, the development of the presidency. And Skoranek notes that the modern era is really a plebiscitory era in which the president goes over the head of political elites and, and you know, Trump's eye alone you know, is really a full articulation of that. And yet the, the thing about the Trump presidency is that all at once, the president, while the presidency has become so much the focus of everything in Washington, uh, the presidency has also shown itself as completely overwhelmed. And although Trump dominates the media uh, just in a, in a 
in a probably more than any other president, uh, Trump's powers are in many ways incredibly weakened by his own incompetence and the overwhelming nature of the challenges that he faces. So I can't tell whether Trump has strengthened or weakened the presidency, but I, I think Biden in many ways represents a very different type of, or would represent a very different type of president, not somebody who's a Washington outsider, uh, who's going to change the way things work, but whose strength is that he's an experienced Washington person. And, and you know, also he's not energetic in the way that, that other candidates have been. You know, he's more of a, of a senior statesman who, you know, let, would let other folks kind of drive the show, I think. And maybe that also puts us in a different model and a, and a different vision of what the presidency is, is that it becomes somebody who's more of a, of a manager uh, and, you know, just sort of a, a senior statesman and less of, a, of the presidency being a transformative figure. And that transformation emerges elsewhere from social movements, that we stop Maybe perhaps maybe depending on the president to be the be all and end all of everything in American politics and and start seeing politics happening in legislatures and in and, you know, even outside of of the halls of power and social movements and civil society. Maybe that's an overly optimistic view, but it sort of feels like we've reached the limits of what we can expect out of the presidency, but we keep sending these outsiders to Washington who promise various versions of this transformational change, change. You know, Bill Clinton runs on change. Uh, you know, Obama runs on change. Trump runs on change. Bush, you know, runs on change to some extent. Reagan runs on change. You know, in that, in this Reagan era, only, you know, George H.W. Bush is kind of a, a Washington insider. So, I mean, maybe maybe what has to change is also the vision of what we expect out of the presidency. Uh, and maybe Biden is a way of articulating a, a new model of the presidency as somebody who doesn't transform Washington by the, by the force of his personality, but as sort of a leader of a, of a coalition of movements. As you were talking, the Bob Dylan song, The Times They Are Changing, came into my uh, came into my head. And I love the verse where he says, Come, senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled the battle outside raging. Will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. Um, I think that really highlights the, the difference between, you know, the 60s and, and today, because it seems like um, the, the walls in Congress aren't, aren't rattling, the windows aren't shaking if uh, most of the time they're dark and closed um, because people are looking elsewhere to do major change. And the point you made about Skoranek's uh, work, I think, is a very good one about uh, in secular time and modernity, because as the power, as Skoranek says, as the power of the presidency has increased, the authority of presidents to reconstruct the political order has been constricted. And I think that's a uh, I think that's very true, especially if you look at uh, the uh, the Obama presidency and also the Trump presidency. I mean, I think both presidencies highlight the limits that 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 a single individual president um, must confront when trying to control the bureaucracy and to control the executive branch. Um, and even beyond that, uh, to control uh, American politics, it's just a really hard thing to do. But 
I think a, a Biden, that the idea that a Biden presidency appears ill-suited to a reconstructive period in American politics, I think it makes more sense if we reconsider Trump's place in our politics and in political time and reconsider whether or not, at least keep in the back of our head, whether or not Trump is a disjunctive president. And I, I read all of the, the analysis on Trump being a disjunctive president at the time, but is I read Skronik's work, and I too went back to it. It seems that when he talks about disjunctive presidents like uh, John Quincy Adams and Jimmy Carter, for instance, that they're presidents that are assume office and they're affiliated with an unpopular and vulnerable political order, right? And and they, it can't address the problems that face the American people at that particular point in time. And those presidents, Adams and Carter, and presumably Trump, if he's disjunctive, were only tenuously connected, right, with the commitments that they inherited. And so therefore, they don't have enough authority with their coalition to break with that past and address these new problems. And so they, they're they playing around the edges. They're trying to modify the agenda. They're trying to modify uh, their, their different policies because they want to revitalize that political order. But they want to refrain from completely breaking with it. And in some respects, Trump, it appears to me, does not do that. Right. Think about the South Carolina debate when he blames George W. Bush for 9-11 and says that the, he has made us less safe. <laughs> that certainly is not, um, you know, that is a, that is a stark break um, with the, uh, with at least rhetorically, with the Republican uh, coalition. If you think about his position on free trade, if you think about his position on immigration, he is exacerbating the different views within the, that coalition on these issues that have long been kind of suppressed to try to and think going back to Pat Buchanan that have long been suppressed to try to maintain that coalition. And, and Trump comes in at least rhetorically and puts his foot on the gas and says, no, we're doing this. And so I'm not sure that Trump necessarily is is disjunctive in the traditional sense. If anything, he may be a failed reconstructive president. And what I mean by that is, you know, he hasn't necessarily recreated the coalition, although he did break the blue wall um, in 2016. He did bring a lot of um, uh, Democrats into the fold or uh, people who are independents. Um, but if you think about the issues that we're going to be talking about in 35 years, what are the issues that are going to frame the debate of American politics for the next generation? I keep thinking they're going to be trade, globalism, uh, immigration, all of these types of issues that are basically a, a response to an opposition to the neoliberal world order that very much united Reagan all the way through to Obama. And so the question becomes, you know, does the fact that Trump did not succeed in in legislating on those issues mean that he wasn't necessarily a reconstructive president? I'm not sure because reconstructive presidents oftentimes are unsuccessful. Jefferson wasn't that successful on the issues that he ran on. Lincoln certainly wasn't successful that we had a civil war. Reagan wasn't successful in, in reducing the size of government. Um, FDR didn't end the New Deal. The World War II ended the new, I mean, the Great Depression. The New Deal didn't do it. Uh, World War II did. And so the fact that Trump hasn't succeeded in legislating um, his idea of what the future ought to look like or his allies haven't succeeded, I'm not sure that necessarily disqualifies him from a reconstructive president. I'm, I, I, I have my concerns about labeling Trump a reconstructive president, but I'm not sure that he's disjunctive either. So maybe we need a new category here. Maybe Skronik needs to add a failed reconstructive president that make it more um, uh, precise. And I think that really helps to explain Biden because I don't, I can't see Biden being um, a break with the past. Now the coalitions around him may do that. 
certainly. But once you win office, it becomes very hard to stand up to in the power of the presidency. Conservatives saw that when uh, George W. Bush won and again when Donald Trump won. Uh, you see that with the Republican Party uniting behind him. And I'm not sure that advocacy groups or uh, rank and file members of Congress or state leaders are going to be able to stand up to the power of the presidency um, in this new environment, um, precisely for the reasons that Lee mentioned, that the presidency is a lot more powerful now. But, but Julia, you have a lot of really interesting points and a lot of really excellent points that I think touch on this very issue. So do you want to you want to walk us through some of those and, and tell me why I'm wrong? Sure. Let me. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I sort of think you're wrong and I sort of don't. So I one thing I, I do want to do is also put in our show notes and direct our listeners. If you're really interested in a deep dive, there's a recent edited volume called Trump, uh, the Trump presidency and American political development. And I have a chapter in there called The Scrambled Cycle. So I've written a lot now about my advisor's theory, um, but where I, I kind of write about how this is, is actually a theory. I mean, it's about the presidency, but it's a lot about parties and coalitions and how that's changed a lot. And it, specifically the kind of dynamics of that have changed a lot after about 1968, after civil rights and after this transformation of how American political parties work. Um, and I do have this this whole argument and this like table of all the ways in which Trump fits into these other parts of political time, these other categories that aren't disjunctive. One of them is, I, I do note basically exactly as you said, James, that he has been very successful in framing the debate and in kind of dominating the conversation, not just the issues that have emerged in the Trump era, which I think you're right, have really made like immigration being a top line salient national issue is very distinct from like from my political lifetime, right? 80s, 90s, 2000s, immigration is like it, it comes up on the national agenda in Congress a couple times. It's obviously an important issue in some states, but it's just like it's not a top line national issue. And I think 2016 was the first time it had ever been mentioned in a vice presidential debate, for example. So I think Trump and also just like the language that Trump uses, right, is everywhere. And so that, I think, does indicate something that's not typical of a disjunctive president, right? You know, you don't think of Jimmy Carter or Herbert Hoover as having changed the political conversation in the same way. But... To, to toggle over to the, to the question of what, what a transformation might look like in the horizon. So we imagine this sort of scenario unfolds. We don't know if it will, but imagine that Biden wins perhaps pretty handily in, in November and becomes president in January. What does this look like? So my argument about this is not so much about what congressional dynamics would look like. I'll let you all address that, but more about like, how would this be like a reconstruction given the dynamics within the Democratic Party? And I think there's a couple things to look at. One is the shifting of political power. So some of that has to do with the terms of debate. For example, things like Medicare for all, defunding the police, abolish ICE. Clearly, not everyone agrees with these things, right? Not even in the Democratic Party does everyone agree on these or agree on what they mean. But they've all to some extent become starting points for that for that conversation and things that people across the ideological spectrum have to have a position on, even if they even if they don't agree, even if they completely disagree. That's where that's where the conversation starts. And I think that's a real shift, right? That is a move away from the the places in which the political conversation has started over the last 40 years. 
The other thing is that, as you know, as you alluded to, James, we we have a lot of question marks about the nature of of the coalitions right now and how dynamic they are. It's just hard to know. And but one thing that we I think I think a safe assumption is the coalitions aren't changing a ton, and they probably won't change a ton in 2021. But what I think is actually changing in the Democratic Party is the balance of power within the Democratic Party. So for a long time, the Democratic Party has relied on black votes, has to a lesser degree relied on votes of the the Latino population and other people of color, religious minorities. But those groups have very rarely been in power. Very rarely have their agendas driven the agenda. And that's something I'm starting to see being different as not only as the country and the party become more diverse, but also as white Democrats, as we've seen in the last, particularly in the last month, but also in the last three years, white Democrats have kind of joined in these issues. So you have a coalition that is really motivated around racial inequality, racial injustice, immigration issues. And that to me is a shift in the balance of power from the Democratic Party of the 90s or even the, you know, the Democratic Party of, of the 60s. That's a, that's a change. The other thing that I, I really want to draw people's attention to is the destruction of institutions. So one of the things that, that Skoranek notes about the Reagan reconstruction is in, in the 1997 edition of the, of the, the, the book and the theory, he refers to, um, to the Reagan reconstruction as rhetorical and said, you know, Reagan talked about getting rid of all these government agencies, but that's actually very hard to do. That's somewhat unique, right? There's previous iterations of um of a reconstructive presidency you know andrew jackson destroys the bank with lincoln we see the the destruction of slavery right these are institutions that were important in american politics in terms of the way that they structured it and you know for various reasons obviously you know slavery needed to go um we could debate about central banking but you know it, it fundamentally changes american politics and we see i think some echoes of this in the question about defunding the police, abolishing ICE, like those are arguments about destroying and rebuilding institutions. And that's not, you know, this isn't to say, and I say this in a piece, right? This isn't a piece about my opinions on these subjects. It's, it's just noting that like, that is part of the reconstructive story is destroying institutions and replacing them with some other way of organizing society. So that's, you know, that's, I think, kind of indicative of a movement that's interested in transforming politics. And then finally, to go back to something that Lee had said, it's also about change at the state and local level. And that's kind of interesting if we look at the pattern of of reconstructive politics. So like you have Jefferson who, who pulls back on the commitments of the federal government, right? And shrinks in some ways, the federal government, not in all ways. Um, and Jackson sort of builds on that in his, his destruction of the bank and in his um, in his his general political orientation. With Lincoln and FDR, we get a move in the other direction, right? A move in, toward the strengthening of the national government relative to the states, a move toward federalizing, nationalizing the country. With Reagan, obviously, the rhetoric in particular moves, moves in the other direction. And I wonder, you know, do we not have these paired transformations that actually go different parties, but they go in the same direction as far as the national versus state question. And that's where I kind of see 
a transformation like this that's very localized and that not only deals with local institutions and the way that they're structured and the concrete element of these institutions, but also the way we think about which institutions are important and the way that we rebuild institutional trust. I think it's very unlikely that institutional trust, that, that the, the way Americans feel about their political institutions, will be rebuilt from the top down. It makes much more sense that it will be rebuilt by having local institutions whose positive presence is is visible to communities, right? Where, where people can see responsiveness and see representation. And the, the idea, the hope, I would think, is for those to be kind of the building blocks of a more effective and responsive federal government, rather than having the federal government, again, kind of try to create this in a top-down fashion. So that that was kind of my, my speculation. Again, I'm kind of building off of what I'm seeing now and trying to project into the the future, but that was kind of what I see as being a transformative agenda that has a fair amount of political clout and power at this moment and is likely, I think, to be the energy behind the Biden presidency if, if the Biden presidency becomes a thing. Yeah, that Your last point and was just such an excellent, uh, excellent point in how the presidency, I think, obscures or limits our ability to really see what's happening elsewhere. But Lee, what you're about to jump in here. What tell us? What What do you think? You know, uh, oh, so many thoughts. So I I want to echo Julia's echo of my point about uh, state and local institutions. And you know, I think one of the things about the uh, Trump's failure to respond to the coronavirus is that this is in many ways the first really truly major failure of the federal government in the modern era. Uh, I think you have to go back to to really to Hoover to see uh, the federal government just fail so completely at handling a national crisis. Well, the conservative in me, I could I think I could name a lot more, but we'll we'll go with it for now. All right. Well, we can we can debate that, but I think the 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 thoroughness of the uh, of the failure to meet a a, a sudden crisis. Uh, when people were really expecting the government to to solve that problem, but the I mean the broader point of, about Trump is that he has has really destroyed many federal institutions, uh, and you know it's it has in terms of the federal workforce. I mean you, you you look at the number of folks who have left the federal workforce in a lot of areas. Uh, Look at the way a lot of federal agencies have have just changed. And, you know, I think that creates an opportunity for a new presidency and a new administration to kind of rebuild some of these agencies in new ways. And, you know, frankly, uh, uh, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of these agencies, you know, are, are, I think, overdue for for a rethinking. You know, a lot of these agencies were set up a, a very long time ago to deal with different problems and have become incredibly bureaucratized and, you know, I think, you know, deserve a rethinking. But in order to have that rethinking, they need to uh, have somebody come in and kind of wipe them out. The, the federal workforce is, is aging tremendously and there's a huge crisis uh, in in retirements and and are new people going to come into the federal workforce? A uh, new new generation coming into government at the state and local level as well, and uh, you know th- there is this this element of a generational shift. And the other 
point that I want to make and respond to James about, about what are the issues. And I think this is you know, an important part of the story of political change is that political change happens when new issues come up and scramble the party coalitions. Uh, the, the, you know, the Skoranek theory of political time shares a lot in common with the, the theory of political realignment, which has uh, used to be kind of a, a master theory of American politics until we stopped having dramatic realignments and instead I think have kind of had a slow and gradual realignment since the 60s. But the, the basic idea is that new issues emerge. And you know, I, I do think that the crisis of climate change has the potential to be a tremendously realigning issue. I see it as a, as a, as a wedge issue that could really split the Republican Party uh, and could <clears throat> kind of reshape the, the, the political fights. I think the, the fights that we're having right now are, are really zero-sum fights that, are, that split the nation. And although I think the Democrats probably have a slight, uh, slight advantage on some of these racial and identity issues, uh, I think they could very easily lose that advantage uh, in a backlash situation, but you know, climate, uh, you know, to some extent, inequality uh, and the the changing economy of automation and, and technology and the, the sort of centralization of economic activities in a few major hubs and a few major corporations. I think that has potential to be a tremendous realignment. I mean, I see a I see a left right coalition emerging on antitrust and anti-monopoly. So those are the issues I think that could reshape politics in, in, a, in a really transformative way. And, and the question is how, how those issues emerge and what pressure and fault points they put on the party coalitions. Yeah, I think one reason that we haven't seen, and this is just me speculating here, which I prefer to do, it's much more fun. Uh, but one reason, uh, one way I explain the lack of realignment, one way I explain the kind of the, not necessarily the breakdown in Skronik's theory, but certainly successive presidents appear ill-fitted for any one kind of type of, of leadership here. It's hard to place them in political time. Is because again, I mentioned this at, at the outset, uh, I think it really is emphasized uh, by by Bob Dylan, uh, the, the great poet and the great poet Lee Drutman, when you were talking about change earlier, is that where we look to do politics today is different. And that reflects a change in how we think about politics. And you don't reveal um, information in, this, in the same way when you have po political fights over major consequential issues that divide the coalitions in the Supreme Court, the federal judiciary, or the executive branch. And, and you don't have that kind of process whereby you can have activists from the local and state levels push things up slowly and bring things onto the agenda that, that divide the parties and force and, you know, rattle the walls of Congress and shake their windows and force them to act. And when they act, it reveals splits and those splits then further embolden and reinforce those uh, new uh, activists in the electorate. And then you begin to get different coalitions. But when you have a Congress that refuses to act, when you have an American people who think that conflict, political conflict, is antithetical to compromise and that the only way to truly do anything major is to win elections and control the factory of Congress, you don't get you don't get those kinds of moments. And our politics appears to get stuck. And I think that really, at least in my mind, explains a lot of, of where we are today. But 
But this is such a fascinating issue. I really encourage our listeners to, to take a look at, at Julia's piece as well. We'll have it in the show notes. But, but what have we learned? Julia, I'm, I'm going to start with you. Have you revised any of your thinking? Uh, have, have Lee and I enlightened any of your th- thoughts? Or are you like, I've, uh, everything you said, I thought well before you. And I've got this. What 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 have you learned here? So I'm I mean I'm thinking about different aspects of this, including Congress and some of what Lee has said about Trump's destruction of the federal workforce or you know his, the impact on the federal government. That's I mean this feeds into a point that you raised earlier and that I had mentioned I've written about, which is the way in which the Trump presidency is actually more complicated than that. The context of it is more complicated than just putting it into this disjunctive box. The other thing, and this is related, that I feel like I need to think more about, and maybe we can, you know, have a whole episode about at some point, is the strength and state of the Republican Party. A lot of what distinguishes a reconstructive president who's able to remake institutions and remake politics from these opposition presidents of, you know, the the Bill Clintons and Richard Nixons of the world is the strength of the opposition. And that, you know, it's not just about who they are, their political skill or the dynamics of their coalition, but about what the opposition is able to do to push back. So that's I think something something that as we're talking I realize is a very big missing piece of, of what we're saying. So that's a little bit a little bit answering a different question, but that's that's where I, I leave you all. Yeah, I feel like we're only scratching the surface here. I think we look to history to guide us and we should, but one of the challenges is that what comes next will inevitably be different. And, you know, there are certain patterns of buildup and breakdown and buildup and breakdown of generational shift of back and forth between uh, faith in markets and faith in government. And, you know, the, the inevitability is that nothing ever quite delivers on the promise of solving all our problems because we always invent more problems and solutions create problems and problems demand solutions and solutions create problems. So that's what keeps politics interesting is we never really resolve anything permanently. We just solve one problem and then it creates another problem. And, you know, there are moments in which we lose faith in our political institutions And there are moments in which we rebuild faith in our political institutions by remaking them. And I don't know how exactly we will remake our political institutions. I I have my suggestions on how we should do that by breaking up the two-party system and changing how we we hold elections and how we vote. But, you know, who knows? Uh, All all I know is that something different will come. And and I really do have a strong belief that we are approaching the end of an old order and something new and generative and transformative will come. And, you know, this is the moment in which those conversations about what comes next are, are so important and fascinating. And I'm glad that we're having them. It certainly feels that way that you know, the old order is coming to an end. I think people may disagree on what that order is, but there's a sense, I think, that everyone shares that things can't go on like this forever. And you're right. I mean, politics is not about building widgets. It's about an ongoing activity that you cannot predict, you cannot control, 
it takes effort. It sounds like a really terrible thing if you think about it. But at the end of the day, it is the it is the best way to govern uh, without rulers. It is the only way to govern without rulers. And, and in America, as I often say, we, we do not have rulers. Um, the minority doesn't rule and the majority doesn't rule, at least in theory. But you know, what I've learned and my takeaway from this is from Julia's piece and the exchange with you, Lee and Julia, is that it's not just about the presidency or our formal institutions. It's these broader, it's what those institutions reflect, the people or the elected representatives who participate in them and the social movements that they're responding to. And I think that's a, a very important thing because if you you look back to the the 60s especially, it's really what happens on the outside that really creates that pressure to force Congress, to force the president, to force the courts to act in certain ways. And if they don't act in those ways, then you get new Congresses and new presidents and new courts. And so that's where the change is going to come from. What that change looks like, I don't know. As I tell my students, uh, I don't care if you're a progressive or a conservative. This is a time to be involved in politics. The future is wide open. And it's just whoever figures out how to respond to the concerns of the American people and whatever that coalition looks like, they're going to control the terms of debate for the next generation or more. And it should be an energetic time. It should be a happy and optimistic time. And I firmly believe that it can. But for that to happen, we have to get back to a correct understanding of politics is an activity in which equals participate to make collective decisions. But with that, uh, we, we've run out of time here. I want to thank our listeners and thank you, Lee and Julia. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.